Okay, hello everyone and welcome to the Chaburah. Today we have a fascinating shiur with Rabbi Dr. Herbert Reichman on contemporary Jewish medical ethics through the eyes of Harambam. Tonight's shiur is presented by the Chaburah in partnership with the Torah Terefua Institute. Formed by Dr. Alicia Khan just over a year ago, the Torah Terefua Institute consists of senior dayanim and rabbanim with an expertise in the field of medical halakha and medical professionals from the UK and abroad. Many accomplished authors, rabbinic community leaders, and senior physicians are part of the group. The aims of the group are to create streamlined access to these senior poskim, create opportunities for further education and training of rabbanim, doctors, and community members in the field of medical halakha. About the Chaburah, we are an online and virtual Bet Midrash inspired by the classical Sephardi approach to Torah and dedicating to studying Mikra, Halakha, Talmud, Machshava, and Chokhmah from all areas of worldly knowledge. We have an impressive network of Talmidim from around the world, many insightful shiurim, get-togethers, a journal, and a publishing house. Thank God we just came out with our first book on Pesach, which is available on Amazon for purchase. About our speaker, uh, Edward Reichman is a professor of emergency medicine and professor in the Division of Education and Bioethics at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine of Yeshiva University, where he teaches Jewish medical ethics. He received his rabbinic ordination from the Rabbi Isaac Elchanan Theological Seminary of Yeshiva University and writes and lectures internationally in the field of Jewish medical ethics. He has been a mentor of the Medical Ethics Society of Yeshiva University since its inception. His research is devoted to the interface of medical history and Jewish law. He's also author of the new book, The Anatomy of Jewish Law, published by Yeshiva University and OU Press. As usual, all our classes are recorded and will be available later on our website. Uh, please raise your hand if you have questions, and please, God, we will also have time for questions at the end. Uh, with that said, thank you, everyone, for joining, especially uh, the Rabbanim and Dayanim who have joined us this week, including Rabbi Akiva Tatz, uh, Rabbi Reichman, it is a privilege to have you with us, and the floor is yours. Thank you so much. A tremendous host for me to uh, to join two really outstanding organizations, the Chabura and the Torah Torah, are, are really ideal uh, vehicles of adult education. Uh, they they are uh, masterfully presented. They are of high, extremely high academic caliber, uh, extremely professional. I, uh, I I learn and enjoy immensely from from both of these platforms, and I and I wish you uh, you both continued success for many years. Mechayel Choyel, they're definitely going to continue to expand, and and I know uh, uh, I view them as a role model. Uh, in terms of uh, of how an online platform of adult education can really be run. So kola kavod or chazaku baruch to you uh, for the tremendous work that you do. Um, I am uh, joining you today to discuss a particular topic. Um, the topic of our of our discussion is going to focus on on the Rambam. We're really going to use the Rambam um, as a vehicle to discuss both history of medicine and uh, and contemporary medicine. Uh, and the title of our talk is if, if the Rambam Were Alive Today, Contemporary Jewish Medical Ethics Through the Eyes of Maimonides. Uh, now, let me start by asking you a simple, a seemingly ridiculous question. If I were to ask you, who is this figure in the center of the slide? Um, I suspect you would all say, of course, that's the Rambam. That's what our talk is about, is it not? Um, the question is, is this really a picture of the Rambam? Do we know, in fact, that the Rambam looked like this? Um, we do know, however, uh, that this is definitely his uh, signature, and we'll discuss where that signature comes from and how we do know that. Um, but 
but clearly this image of the Rambam has become ubiquitous uh, uh, throughout the world. We find it uh, in statues, we find it uh, in, uh, in circulation, in coins, on bills. Um, the Rambam has definitely made his mark, but the Rambam has also made his stamp, if you will. Uh, the Rambam is actually on many stamps internationally. And uh, in some places that you wouldn't necessarily think you'd find a stamp of the Rambam, including the Republic of Chad and Lesotho and Antigua and uh, Grenada and Micronesia. Micronesia. Uh, <clears throat> However, uh, the, this depiction of the Rambam, the, uh, we only find it, the earliest we find it uh, is actually in the 18th century. Uh, and it was picked up from a, a thesaurus of Ugolinus um, by uh, by one of the great scholars, which I think you may have discussed uh, in some of your sessions, uh, Yitzhak Shmuel Regio or Regio, uh, and he picked it up from the thesaurus of uh, of Ugolinus. But we don't have any record whatsoever of this depiction of the Rambam prior to that time period. And I suspect uh, that the Rambam probably would not have had time to sit for a portrait. Uh, and how do we know this? Uh, we know this from the very famous uh, letter, which I suspect uh, many of you are familiar with. We actually today have a Rambam Yomi, um, which you can get on your, uh, on your cell phones now. Uh, but we also have a record of the Rambam's Yom, uh, what, what a typical day for the Rambam looked like and why it was unlikely that the Rambam would have actually had time to sit for a portrait. This uh, is just an excerpt from a wonderful letter that if you haven't read, I, I suggest you read. Uh, it's a letter to Shmuel ibn Tibon. Shmuel ibn Tibon was uh, from the famous translating family, the ibn Tibon family, and was in the process of, uh, of translating uh, the Rambam's famous philosophical work, Morin Avuchim, and he wrote to the Rambam uh, asking if he could uh, come visit him and discuss the translation. Translating in general is challenging. Translating the Rambam's philosophical work uh, is really a monumental task. It's not the kind of thing uh, that would be done easily. It's definitely something which would require clarification of terms and phrases and meaning uh, with the author. So in essence, the Rambam wrote back to him, thank you very much. It's a wonderful idea. Uh, but uh, I wouldn't bother. I wouldn't waste your time in essence, because you could come visit me, but I, I really won't have any time to spend with you. And the Rambam begins to discuss exactly what his day consists of. He, he wakes up very early in the morning and goes to the, uh, to the palace to take care of King Saladin and, uh, and his harem. And he's there for most of the day. Um, and then he says he, he returns uh, from the king's palace, and he mace rav, and I'm I'm ravenously hungry, and I find exedros kula maleos adam, and I find the uh, the porticos, the uh, the courtyards completely filled uh, with people awaiting my medical consultation. Goyim v'yehudim, Jews and non-Jews, important, unimportant, uh, judges, officers, ohavim, uh, sonim. Basically, it's a great equalizer. Coming to visit the Rambam, I guess, for a uh, for a medical consulta consultation was the great equalizer. And he continues to uh, to describe how he would do many of his consultations leaning on his side because uh, of pure exhaustion, barely had time to eat. And only after he finished his consultations, 
would he do some of the writings that we are now uh, privy to today that we have spent uh, thousands, hundreds of thousands of hours and, uh, and hundreds of years learning and studying. Uh, just an interesting brief tangent because uh, we're speaking to, to a group largely from, uh, from the United Kingdom. The notion of Jews treating physicians, uh, Jews uh, treating kings and monarchs is not a new phenomenon. It was actually quite common throughout history. But I just share with you one really remarkable example. Uh, King Henry IV uh, from the 1400s was in need of uh, medical consultation. Um, he was uh, actually apparently not being healed by those who lived in England. So he sent away for a physician from Italy whose name was Elia Sabato. Elia Sabato was a Jew um, and he uh, and he, Elias Sabato said, I will, I will come and treat you, Henry IV, but only on one proviso. And that proviso would be um, that I bring with me decim ominibus servientibus. Um, Rabbi Tatz, you might uh, remember this. I, I, I mentioned this, uh, this passage uh, in, our, in our previous meeting. Uh, so he said, I, I will come treat you, King Henry IV, on the proviso that I'm allowed to bring 10 men with me. Um, now, why would uh, Elia Sabato request safe passage or uh, safe conduct for 10, uh, 10 men? Uh, so I think you would, uh, you probably will be thinking correctly that, uh, that he needed a minion of people to come with him so he could daven with a minion every day. Couldn't he find a minion in England? Uh, in all of England, couldn't uh, couldn't Sabato find a minion? The answer is no, he couldn't, because Jews had been tossed out of England centuries before. Uh, it wasn't until Oliver Cromwell, hundreds of years later, that uh, the Jews would uh, would return to the country. Um, and and I always ask, why did he need to bring ten? Uh, he only needed another nine. So my assumption is, just like the Rambam spent most of his time at the palace. Um, I suspect uh, Sabato spent most of his time treating Henry IV at his palace, uh, so the, these men would need ten to have a minion. If he would, if he didn't make it back from Mincha, only only made it back from Mara, this way they would they would be able to have a minion. Uh, you are all familiar, especially this elite and highly educated group with the Rambam's halachic writings, with his parish of Mishnayis. He has a manuscript, handwritten manuscript of the Rambam, the parish Mishnayis. Uh, Mishnah Torah, uh, also returning to England, is a famous uh, manuscript of the Mishnah Torah, which is autographed, uh, not, not handwritten by the Rambam, but autographed by the Rambam, uh, which is held in the Bodleian Library. And it says, Huga Misifri, meaning that uh, it was compared to the Rambam's own handwritten edition, Ani Moshe Barabi Maimon. And this is, this is the uh, signature of the Rambam that, that, uh, that we find underneath the famous picture of the Rambam on the front slide. Um, you're also familiar with the Moranavuchim, the philosophical works of the Rambam. <clears throat> Here's a beautiful manuscript from the 1300s, and they are not infrequently at auction, rare editions you sometimes find at auction. This is an incunable, this is from the uh, printing uh, before the 15, before 1500, and he printed works, so the Gutenberg Press was uh, 1454 roughly. Uh, all books printed before 1500 are called incunabula, or uh, you know the the infancy the the cradle if you will of printing, so uh, those books are exceedingly rare. There aren't too many in the entire world of any types of printing, uh, and you can imagine there's far fewer 
uh, in the uh, in Hebrew printed books. So when they do go for auction, they uh, they go for quite uh, quite a sum of money. We do find a lot of the Rambam from the Cairo Geniza. Uh, I'm not going to really discuss extensively the Cairo Geniza. I'll mention some samples from the Cairo Geniza, but here again, uh, this is something that you from the Chaburah are familiar with. You, uh, uh, I actually uh, uh, attended uh, the session. I don't remember exactly how long ago it was. You had a wonderful session on the Cairo Geniza um, from, uh, from the curator of the collection in Cambridge, I believe, uh, correct, the, uh, who took over for Stefan Reif. That's an absolutely wonderful session. Uh, so, so the Kairogeniza uh, is was is fertile ground for manuscripts of the Rambam, and really has provided us a great insight uh, into the works of the Rambam. And just to share with you, in case uh, you are not familiar, but I suspect you probably are familiar because you uh, you are on top of the latest of of, of academia. But there's a new book that has come out on the Kairogeniza. Uh, absolutely spectacular work called the Cairo Geniza and the Age of Discovery in Egypt. And it shares and, and opens up uh, vistas into the Cairo Geniza far beyond uh, the standard uh, Schechter story and the two women from England who showed him the, uh, the passage of Ben Sira uh, and, and enlightens to, uh, to many, many more players in this uh, remarkable history of manuscripts from, from the Mideast from that period of time. Um, and I put here just this, this past week, a few days ago, um, Dr. Rebecca Jefferson, who authored this book, who is a curator, I think she's from England originally, she's a curator in a library in Florida of a Judaica collection. Uh, and she was interviewed in the Svarm Chatter podcast, which uh, many of your viewers uh, may be familiar with. If they're not, uh, I think they would enjoy immensely. Um, but she spoke about, about uh, her work uh, and this book, and it's just a fascinating talk that I recommend if, if you have time. We do find a, uh, a number of relevant passages from the Kairogeniza, which shed light on the Rambam and, and his medical training and medical training in general uh, for, for Jewish physicians in this period of time. So there's a famous letter which has been oft quoted by Meir Ibn al-Khamadani to the Rambam, asking him to accept his son as his assistant for the study of medicine. Now, Alicia, I don't know if you have uh, people, students that come and uh, and ask you to uh, to shadow you. Um, you know, so I, I'm in the emergency room. It's a very typical place for people to uh, to ask if if they could have their children, their their sons or their daughters, come shadow in the emergency room to get exposure, to get experience. So the same was true for the Rambam. Uh, so this Mayor Ibn Al Hamadani asked the Rambam if his son could shadow, uh, shadow the Rambam. And he says that he, he, he dared apply to him only because he had heard that the Rambam's nephew, who had worked under him thus far, now practiced elsewhere. Uh, he promises to pay Maimonides a higher honorarium than the former apprentice. Uh, this, this has been famously quoted. I, I, uh, in the interest of, of, uh, of academic honesty and scholarship, there are those who question whether, in fact, it doesn't say the Rambam's name explicitly. So there is some who question whether, in fact, this letter was to the Rambam. Uh, so Goitan, the famous scholar from the Cairo Geniza, claims that this was a letter uh, to the Rambam. However, a contemporary scholar, uh, Professor Friedman from Tel Aviv University, says the identification of Maimonides as the letter's recipient is not without difficulty. 
Uh, and he claims that there are uh, a number of, of challenges in making that identification. And Goitan was actually his his mentor and his professor. So he claims that he falls short of the mark in making that identification. Uh, but what we do have is we do have, uh, in the Geniza, we do have uh, examples of libraries of physicians in Egypt contemporaneous with the Rambam. Uh, and this is but uh, but one example. Um, so we would have known what what the average physician's library likely uh, a, a glimpse into what the library of the Rambam himself would have looked like. Here I just pull out one very interesting book from this library. Um, in this in this article, the uh, the uh, Judeo-Arabic is uh, is translated into uh, into Hebrew. It's transliterated and translated. Uh, so one of the works that you find in this library, and what you find in these libraries often, this happens to be the case, they are auctions of libraries of individuals, oftentimes after the individual died. Uh, so in these auctions, uh, you find a list of all their svarim. And so you have their svarim, their Hebrew svarim, and also you have their medical works. Uh, so one of the works that you find in this list of a Jewish physician contemporaneous with the Rambam uh, it translated into Hebrew, the name of the book was Hanoladim Lechet Chodoshim. People or children who are born uh, at eight months. Uh, now, uh, what exactly does that refer to? What exactly does that mean? Um, well, for those of you who are, who are not familiar, some of you who uh, who study the world of medical halacha, especially if you're interested in, uh, in neonatology or uh, a reproductive uh, aspect of, uh, or, or Hilchus Bris, for example, you may have come across this notion that in Chazal, you will find referenced a, an understanding about birth months and viability. And that if a child was born in the seventh month of gestation or after seven months of gestation, that child would be considered viable. If the child was born after nine months of gestation, that child would equally be considered viable. However, if a child was born in the eighth month of gestation, that child would be considered non-viable. Um, and, and that was a very, very prominent notion. Uh, this notion was not at all unique to Chazal. If you just read it in the Gemara and the Rishonim and the Achronim, you might think so. Uh, but it was extremely prevalent um, in contemporaneous science for many, many centuries, it was really only uh, disproved in, in the modern era. Uh, and the Rambam himself discusses this uh, famous case of Nolad B'Shmona, uh, the, the child of Ches Chodoshim, in Hilfus Milo. And he writes, Misha Nolad B'Chodesh Hashmini, Im Hayasholim B'Sa'ara Vutzipornav, if a child is born of eight months gestation and his, his development reflects that he is a, a child of complete embryological development, um, then it is permissible to perform the bris on Shabbos. Aval im nolad usara lakui ve'ensi pornav shleimim kibriyason hareze keben shmona shmona vaday shloha yarori lehivaleid ela betisha v'yotza kodim shigomer. But if if there's a physical reflection of the, of the fact that the child is not completely developed, so the the, the nails, for example, are not developed, the hair uh, is not fully developed, etc then it's a reflection that that child is considered an absolute ben shmona, a sort of a vadai ben shmona. So what's the consequence of that? And this is the halacha 
uh, in Shulchan Aruch, that uh, a child who is known to be born in, in eight months uh, of gestation uh, is considered a, uh, as if he wouldn't survive, non-viable. As such, it's, it's ushered to pick up the child, to move the child, and be ushered to perform a bris on that child. Uh, and that was the halacha which the Rambam codified. That, uh, fast forward to today, not really our discussion today, the concept of nishtana teva, how things, uh, understanding of medicine has evolved. Of course, that's, that's part of our discussion, but that itself merits a fuller discussion. We today treat the eight-month baby, even if we know with absolute certainty the child was born in eight months gestation, we would absolutely violate Shabbos to perform a mila for that child. Um, and, and in fact, our, our notion or our understanding of neonatology is that the eighth month is, is better uh, than the seventh month. There's uh, more time for gestation, intrauterine gestation, and the ninth month, of course, is, is better. They, they, uh, I'm not going to discuss the, their, their perceptions of this, but this is clearly a perception of the, of the eight, eighth month being unique, and there was such a concept of the seventh month gestation and a nine month gestation, uh, which were viable, and the eighth month, which was not. Uh, returning to the types of, of books that would be used by by uh, by the likes of the Rambam and any physicians uh, of his time period, uh, there is a work uh, which collects from the Geniza all the medical and paramedical fragments in the Cairo Geniza. It was collected by Haskell Isaacs, uh, passed away a number of years ago. He was actually the head of the medical aspect of the Geniza. I had a chance to visit him uh, in Cambridge a number of years ago. So in, in this work, if you just look at the index of this work, uh, you will see, if you look up Galen, who's one of the major players in uh, in secular medical history, Galen, uh, just to give you an idea, when Galen lived, Galen lived roughly uh, contemporaneous with Rabbi Huda Hanasi, second, uh, first, second century of the Common Era. Hippocrates lived in the, uh, you're all familiar with, of course, in, in the, roughly in the fifth century before the Common Era. So keep in mind the Geniza are Hebrew fragments that Jews deposited in the Geniza. Look how many of these fragments they identified are from Galen. Look how many of these fragments they identified are from Hippocrates. So quite a few, which means that this was uh, clearly part of the libraries of, of Jewish physicians at that time. And we have, uh, um, and Alicia, I think you may have uh, posted this or sent this to me, uh, so I thank you for that. And we have other other records of the Rambam specifically uh, relating to people in terms of the practice of medicine. Uh, from the this is from the Princeton the Geniza Lab, and we have uh, this is an article actually by the very same person, Haskell Isaacs, who was the uh, the head of the medical Geniza that I mentioned. And this also, I think, Alicia, this this you sent uh, sent as well. Uh, this goes back from a tradition from a number of years ago, letter of the Rambam to his uh, student, uh, Yosef ben Yehuda Ibn Aknin. By the way, Yosef ben Yehuda uh, Ibn Aknin was the, um, was the recipient of the, of the Mornavuchim. He was the student to whom the Rambam addressed the Mornavuchim. And the Rambam specifically says to him, my advice to you is to pay full attention to your trade and the practice of medicine, and at the same time, uh, continue to study the Torah voluntarily. Uh, so he asked him if he should, uh, basically, if he should study Torah full-time or if he should uh, take up another profession. So the Rambam recommended to him to continue his medical practice uh, in addition to his, uh, to his Torah studies. Uh, and from this article from Professor Mordechai Friedman, he also mentions uh, another reference that the Rambam uh, clearly uh, taught medicine 
um, from an Arabic manuscript, which he translates uh, that he studied under other prominent masters of medicine who were at that time in Egypt, uh, such as the Rais Musa al-Qurtubi, uh, which is uh, the author of the well-known works and other, other, uh, others of his rank. Uh, and this is someone else talking about the people that he studied with. And this individual, Rais uh, Moses of Cordoba, uh, is clearly a reference to the Rambam. So the Rambam was, in fact, a teacher of medicine, in addition to the extraordinary halachic works that he left us. What were the Rambam's works actually comprised of? Uh, so the Rambam has a number of medical writings. He wrote on asthma, on hemorrhoids, on uh, sexual uh, health, um, and we'll see in a moment on, on preventive medicine as well. Um, but just to give you a context of, of how medical history was in the pre-modern era, keep in mind the Rambam was in the 12th century, um, and he wrote a perush, uh, Lepirke Avukrat. Now, uh, do, you, do you guys have any idea who Avukrat uh, might be? So Avukrat is actually Hippocrates. So the Rambam, many of you know the Rambam's uh, uh, Mishnah Torah and the Rambam's Perush and Mishnayis. You didn't know he wrote a Perush on Hippocrates, I, I suspect. Um, and he also wrote a Perush on Galen. Uh, so these two extraordinary figures, whose manuscripts we find uh, uh, plentifully in the, in the Cairo Geniza, uh, were, were an integral part of, of medical practice and medical study at that time. And the Rambam actually wrote uh, uh, commentaries on their works. Uh, and here's, a, here's an example. This, by the way, is a Hebrew translation of the works of, uh, of, the, of the medical work of the Rambam by Zisman Muntner. The, the works of the medical works of the Rambam were written in Arabic, not Judeo-Arabic, but pure Arabic. This is a translation of that Arabic to, uh, to Hebrew. And here you have one small section, Omar Avukrat, Mishahayamina Ubrim Zohar. Uh, if a child uh, is male, it is more likely than not, or it is uh, certain in this case, uh, that he was conceived on the right side of the woman. Uh, and if the child turns out to be a female child, a child was conceived or gestated on, on, the, on the left side. Uh, and this is a reference to the, the uh, so-called right-left theory of, uh, of sex determination, whether a child would be a male, whether a child would be a female. We'll talk about uh, just uh, presently, we'll talk about a, a fascinating source in other contemporary uh, Rishonim of the Rambam who addressed this, but the Rambam clearly did not have such positive words for this notion. Um, and he writes, the uh, in Higia Zebinivua. So he writes about Hippocrates. You know, I don't, I don't know where he got this idea from. Uh, there's no basis for this idea. Maybe he got it from a Nivua, Oshegila Behekesh. Maybe he, uh, he had some kind of philosophical uh, uh, analytical analysis uh, uh, which he arrived at this conclusion. But either way, Inehu Hekesh Nifla. If it is, if it is uh, from from a philosophical analysis. Uh, it is it is clearly uh, not something that the Rambam agreed with, um, and thought it was it was rather uh, incorrect, uh, which is interesting in light of the fact that we find some contemporaneous uh, Rishonim who discuss a very similar idea in a positive light. 
So we're coming up soon on uh, Parshas Ki Tazria, and the, the Pasuk begins, Tazria Vaidaber Hashem Moshe Limor Yishaki Tazria Zachor. When a woman gives forth uh, Zera and, uh, and gives birth to a male child, and then the uh, the Torah tells us about the different periods of Tomb of Atara. Uh, this Pasuk is a springboard for many fascinating discussions about reproductive anatomy and reproductive physiology throughout many centuries of, uh, of rabbinic literature. Uh, and it's fascinating because each period of time reflects the, the understanding of anatomy and the understanding of physiology during that period of time. And this is, this is one interesting example uh, along the similar lines to that which the Rambam was not so fond of. And uh, here you have in Paneach Raza and Dazakanim or Rishonim uh, writing on this Pasuk, Kisazria, uh, uh, and they write, Kosov Hagan B'Shem Ibn Ezra. Ibn Ezra was a contemporary of the of the Rambam. Shibhiyos Shibarechem Isha Zayin Chadarim. That the the uh, uterus of a, of a woman has seven chambers: Gimel Miyamin v'Gimel Mismol, three on the right and three on the left. The Echad Beemza. Ukshazera Niklat V'Shal Yamin, and if the seed uh, deposits on the right, she will conceive a male child. If it deposits on the left, she will conceive a female child. And what's going to happen if the child uh, is conceived in the center chamber? Uh, so uh, there, there are different approaches here. Uh, so for example, Das Balitosa says, it'll be either ambiguous genitalia or, uh, or hermaphrodite. Because if the if the right is is male and the left is female, if there's one in the center, it'll have both male and female. Uh, androgenus andro like andrology is male, genus like gynecology is female. It's a combination of uh, of of the male and the female. Um, this this notion of the seven seven chambered uterus uh, is is a fascinating notion. It, it it does not find its expression anywhere before this period of time. It is not mentioned in the Gemara. It's not mentioned in the times of the Gaonim. Why it specifically expressed itself in this period of time uh, is, is, is a matter of interest. We'll talk in a moment about the history of anatomy and anatomical dissection. You might ask yourself, didn't they simply know that, that if you dissect a female uh, post-mortem, you would see there aren't seven chambers in the uterus. There's only one chamber in the uterus. So the short answer to that, as we'll see momentarily, is no, they didn't know. And no, they didn't do dissection in any systematic fashion. Uh, but this, this nonetheless arose, and these are some of the depictions from the Middle Ages of this uh, seven-chambered uterus. Uh, and interestingly, the Maharal picks up this notion of seven-chambered uterus uh, with respect to the Pasuk and Shmos, B'nei Yisrael Paruva Yishvatsuva Yerbuvia Atzmubi Ma'od Ma'od Vatimalei Aretz Hasam, that um, the, uh, uh, we're all familiar with the Medrash uh, Rabba, which Rashi quotes, that the uh, the the, chill, the the women of um, of Mitzrayim, how do we ex- explain the population explosion? So the answer is the women of Mitzrayim gave birth to sex tuplets. Um, so the, the Maharal picks up this seven chambered uterus, and he said, the miracle wasn't that they, they gave birth to, to as many as six. The miracle was they only gave birth to six, because potentially the woman could have given birth to seven based on this notion of the seven chambered uterus. However. If she would have given birth to seven at a time, then by necessity, one of those seven would have been deposited in the center chamber and the child would have been either an androgynous or a, uh, uh, or, or a tumtum, and that would have been a clola. 
So, uh, so it's an interesting uh, example of co-opting contemporaneous science and medicine into, uh, into commentary. Um, today, the, um, I'm not sure if he's actually completed the project, but he's clearly near completion. Herod Boss, uh, who I actually met many years ago when I spent some time at the Wellcome Institute in London, in Houston, uh, near, uh, near Houston Station. Um, and uh, he was beginning some of his work then, but he is an absolute master of, uh, of uh, medical historical Hebrew manuscripts and literature. And he has done a, an extraordinary job of translating the, from the original Arabic, uh, the Rambam's medical works. So if you have a serious interest in the Rambam's medical works, this would absolutely be the work that you would, uh, you would need to, uh, you'd need to see. Um, I don't know how many of you uh, have the Maimonides prayer for the physician. Alicia, do you have that? Uh, you have a copy at home? You don't have a copy? I happen to have a copy right here. This is my, uh, actually, I don't know if you can see because the uh, background is fading, fading in and out. There you go. So this, my parents, Aleya Mashalom, uh, got this for me many years ago from the famous olive factory. I don't know how many of you remember the olive factory on Rechov Me'asharim. You get all these interesting uh, interesting things. Uh, so I hope for those of you who do, ha do have it, I hope you kept your receipts uh, for the following reason. The uh, Tfilos Harofe uh, authored by the Rambam was in fact not authored by the Rambam. Uh, it is uh, falsely attributed to the Rambam. Uh, it was actually written by a physician much later in history. Um, uh, it was written by Marcus Hertz in the, in the late 18th century. Marcus Hertz, fascinating figure of the Haskalah. Uh, he penned a, a prayer uh, and the literary conceit at that time was to, to write things uh, in the style of famous authors of uh, previous generations, either from antiquity or, or earlier centuries. And he wrote a prayer uh, in the style of what he would have anticipated the Rambam would have written. Uh, he did not hide that fact, uh, just with the passage of time, his name got left off the bottom uh, and uh, and people just attributed the tefillah to the Rambam when in fact it wasn't written by the Rambam. And, and Dr. Uh, Yoshua Leibovitz is the cousin of Nechama Leibovitz, um, discovered, exposed that fact in uh, in an article in the 1950s in the Dapim Um But what if the Rambam were alive today? Um, how would he paskin, what would he have to say um, about some of these really exciting things? So I, I share with you, just for, for a brief moment, an essay um, inspired by uh, Soloveitchik uh, where he writes the following, and it's really a beautiful essay. Just read a small excerpt of it. Um, the rabbi is seated and sees before him rows of young beaming faces, clear eyes radiating the joy of being young. For a moment, the rabbi is gripped with pessimism, with tremors of uncertainty. He asks himself, can there be a dialogue between an old teacher and young students, between a rabbi and his Indian summer and students enjoying the spring of their lives? The rabbi starts the class uncertain as to how he will proceed. Suddenly, the door opens and an old man, much older than the rabbi, enters. He is the grandfather of the rabbi, Reb Chaim Brisker. It would be most difficult to study Talmud with students who are trained in the sciences and mathematics were it not for his method. 
which is very modern and equals, if not surpasses, most contemporary forms of logic, metaphysics, and philosophy. The door again opens, and another old man comes in. He is older than Reb Chaim, for he lived in the 17th century. His name is Reb Shab Taiko, known as the Shach, who must be present when civil law is discussed. Many more visitors arrive, some from the 11th, 12th, and 13th centuries, and others harking back to antiquity. Rabbeinu Tam, Rashi, Rambam, Ravid, Rashba, Rabbi Akiva, and others. These scholarly giants of the past are bidden to take their seats. The rabbi introduces the guests to his pupils, and the dialogue commences. So if you will, we will be inviting the Rambam into our classroom today uh, in the hopes of getting a glimpse in a very general fashion uh, what the Rambam would say about a number of topics in the world of medicine today. Let us start with preventive medicine. What would the Rambam say about preventative medicine? An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. So the Rambam in Hilchas Deus uh, deviates uh, in, uh, from the rest of his halachic writings. The Rambam, as, as we well know, and as we discussed at the beginning of our, of our, uh, of our lecture, uh, was, uh, was very familiar with the world of medicine and has extensive writings in the world of medicine. You will not find in any of the Rambam's medical writings discussion of halacha. And the converse is largely true. You will rarely find medical discussions in all the halachic works of the Rambam. Of course, if the Gemara is discussing medicine, the Rambam will discuss the Gemara. Although, interestingly, the Rambam omits a number of medical passages in the Gemara. Uh, and there's been, of course, discussion as to why he would have done that. Maybe he didn't think it was uh, it was proper medicine. Uh, each one of those is analyzed in its own right. But in Hilchas Deos, he, he clearly uh, ha has a, a lengthy explication of preventive medicine practices. Uh, and you could say really that the Rambam is the pioneer of preventive medicine, the great grandfather, if you will, of preventive medicine. And he writes in Halacha Aleph of Perik Dalad, since maintaining a healthy body is, is uh, consistent uh, with the ways of Baruch Hu, it's impossible to uh, to learn to understand the concepts and precepts of the Torah, if you are ill, therefore you should refrain from things which harm or damage your body. Um, and and he uh, he he goes to on to list in uh, in some uh, roughly twenty halachos. Um, every aspect of uh, of eating and types of foods and when the foods should be eaten um, and when liquids should be ingested in conjunction with or separate from foods, uh, sleeping habits, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and here, Dr. Fred Rosner uh, wrote an article in the Journal of History of Medicine and Allied Sciences in 1996, Moses Med uh, Maimonides, and preventive medicine. Uh, Dr. Rasner, by the way, uh, in, in addition to the wonderful works that he has written over the many years, uh, translated uh, the, the Rambam's work into the Rambam's medical works into English uh, from the Hebrew, from Zussman Muntner's Hebrew, he translated them into English. Uh, and he actually amassed an extraordinary personal collection of rare works of the Rambam, which he uh, he um, 
he has given to the uh, the institute in Haifa called the Maimonides Institute in Haifa of Rabbi Asaf. So that uh, that amazing collection of Fred Rosner today is in uh, is in Haifa. Uh, and at the end of his halachos, uh, Ramba makes an extraordinary promise. Um, and he writes, Kol haman after, after he gives a litany of, uh, of, of advice uh, about how to lead one's life and the preventive uh, measures in, in all aspects of, of health. If you follow my advice, he says, um, I, in essence, promise you uh, that you will not become sick your entire life. Um, until you become very old, uh, Rabbi Tatz, maybe he's alluding here that if you follow his advice, he could, uh, you could live a few hundred years. Um, you will not need any physician. And, and you will have a, uh, you'll be in, in, uh, in the pinnacle of health your entire lives. Uh, but he, he has some qualifications there. What is the exception, the qualifications? If someone had predisposition to disease from birth. Uh, so what is the Rambam alluding to here? Some genetic uh, conditions which would uh, preclude health or different aspects of health. It's a foreshadowing of, uh, of different genetic conditions. And interestingly, apropos uh, where we find ourselves today, oim tavo makas dever or if there is a plague. So the Rambam can't promise you uh, that if you follow all his suggestions that you will, you will not fall victim uh, to a plague like COVID-19 or, or other of its predecessors. Uh, and for another, another discussion, the theology of plague in terms of, uh, of how, how it afflicts people specifically, are, are the people that, that die or are afflicted during plague, are they uh, uh, people that necessarily have been uh, sinners or is there indiscriminate loss of life in times of plague? And how, how did a Kaddish Baruch Hu design plague uh, in terms of, uh, of that theological dimension? That's, that merits its own discussion. Even today, there are people who turn to the Rambam uh, and, and apply the Rambam's principles to how they lead their lives from a health perspective. Uh, so here's an article from uh, Nutrition Reviews, seated at the table with Rashi and Rambam, uh, extracting the food habits of Rambam. And there's a book called The Life-Transforming Diet, Health and Psychological Principles of Maimonides. And there's some people who are actually looking for cures, medical cures, uh, or treatments of, of current diseases uh, by a detailed analysis of the works of the, uh, of the, works of the Rambam. People have also turned to the Rambam for his approach to the patient. And there's an article from, uh, from the journal on your side of the pond, The Lancet, uh, equivalent to our journal of the American Medical Association here in the United States, um, back in 2001, called Maimonides' Con Contribution to the Biopsychosocial Approach in Clinical Medicine. And the author concludes, the medical writings of Maimonides are a rich repository to gain an appreciation of the biopsychosocial foundation of clinical practice. I hope my reading and interpretation of his work has provided an insight into how doctors of the 21st century might fulfill their clinical role more effectively through the adoption of a Maimonidian position. Uh, what would the Rambam say about anatomical dissection? Now here it's important to appreciate that one would think that the Rambam would clearly discuss issues of anatomical dissection. He trained as a physician. How could you train as a physician and not know anatomy? 
Uh, and we and we had just discussed this uh, seven-chambered uterus, which which seems to reflect the fact that perhaps they didn't know so much anatomy at the times of the Rambam. Uh, and the truth of the matter is, you will not find any discussion of anatomical dissection or autopsy in the works of the Rambam, uh, nor will you find them in the Shulchan Aruch. The very first mention that you find uh, is the classic Tshuva of the Nodav Yehuda. I don't have a copy of the Nodav Yehuda here, uh, but the Tshuva of the Nodav Yehuda, Reish Yud, uh, Yaradea, uh, where he talks about autopsy there and uh, his famous psak about uh, only being allowed to perform an autopsy if there's a Chol Lefanenu, somebody who will directly immediately benefit. So uh, this actually is a picture of uh, the fabric of the human body by Andreas Vesalius, who's a professor of anatomy at the uh, University of Padua in Northern Italy. He's considered to be the pioneer of systematic anatomical dissection. Uh, just an interesting parenthesis for us Jews, this classic work, The Fabric of the Human Body, considered one of the great works of all of medical history. Um, has magnificent illustrations, and it has terms in multiple languages uh, for the anatomy. Here you say vena cava. Uh, so they're in Latin, they're in Greek, and some of the terms are also in this language, which some of you may be familiar with, uh, which is really quite remarkable. Uh, this is, uh, if, if anyone want to hazard a guess what this says, actually it says haorti. Uh, which refers to the aorta. Uh, now you might ask me appropriately, this is clearly the venous system, especially those of you in the medical field. Uh, and it says vena cava here. So why doesn't it say Hebrew equivalent to vena cava? Why does it say the aorta? So some have actually claimed that the, the person who helped Vesalius with his, with his Hebrew wasn't so sharp, <laughs> didn't have didn't have a great uh, a great grasp of the anatomy. But there there there's a debate about this. This is believed to be the person who helped him. He's actually in the picture here. His name is Lazarus de Phrygius, probably from Blazer and Shul. Looks kind of like Moses with his fez. He's he's apparently the person who uh, who assisted Vesalius. Um, Let's just let's now turn to a few. The hours. Uh, apologize, it's already five twenty. Uh, I'm not going to go five thirty-five. Is that okay, uh, guys? I don't want to go too. Uh, please, too late. please, as long as you want. This is uh, okay. I, mean, I, I don't mind. I don't mind going longer. People who need to uh, who need to leave, you know, feel free to leave. I won't be offended. And also, I can't even see if you're leaving because I'm looking at the PowerPoint anyway. So I, I definitely won't be offended. Um, this this case um, I'm a little hesitant to talk about in the presence of the master Rabbi Tatz, who has spoken many many times about this extraordinary case. Uh, but it's just an indication of what the Rambam would paskin today, and we'll we'll go through some contemporary discussion, contemporary cases. This is this is a famous case. We're only going to mention it very briefly. Um, uh, one one of the most challenging cases in the history of, of Jewish medical ethics. It's a case that dates back to 1977 of a case of twins that were conjoined twins and shared one six-chambered heart, uh, and the and there was no way they would survive uh, without intervention. With intervention, only one could survive. So the question was, could you sacrifice one to save the life of the other? And the surgeon at that time was C. Everett Koop. Um, this is the famous case of the, uh, the conjoined twins, Cheng and Eng Bunker, who were known, they were from Siam. That's why their twins are called the Siamese twins. They were exhibited by, uh, by Barnum and Bailey Circus for many years. They, they, by the way, were offered to separate 
um, they were Thoracopagus twins. They were they were connected at the chest wall. They could have been easily separated later in life, but they chose not to. Uh, they had separate wives and separate families. How that worked, I'm not exactly sure. Uh, there are also uh, people who have um, who are connected by the by the skull or by the brain. Those are called craniopagus twins, and this is a case that was successfully separated in Israel a number of years ago. Uh, this year, I'm sorry, September of, of this past year. Um, but uh, but just to share with you very briefly what what the Rambam would have said on this case, and in essence, uh, we know what the Rambam would have said on this case, or could have said on this case, because the Rambam was invoked uh, in in the decision about how to address this case by none other than Rav Moshe Feinstein's. That's all. Uh, in in this uh, very complex case, which we're just highlighting one one idea, uh, and I and I highly recommend you listen to the full shiur of of uh, Rabbi Tatz on this on this remarkable case. But Rav Moshe ultimately poskined, uh, inspired by the words of the Rambam, uh, as to uh, how to deal with this case, and uh, he he made a very clear determination from C. Everett Koop that one of the fetuses. Uh, one, one of the fetuses, one of the one of the twins, was a primary twin, or had had greater ownership, if you will, over the heart, or more likelihood of survival, and the other was a, uh, a secondary twin, or uh, perhaps a parasitic twin, which was uh, taking the life from the other twin and probably could not have been able to survive on on his own, and based on those facts, uh, Moshe Feinstein invoked the halacha of the Rambam. Uh, fascinating halacha uh, of Rodef, and he writes, One shouldn't have any mercy on a pursuer. Therefore, the rabbis have, have concluded that when a woman is having difficulty during childbirth, it is permitted to abort the fetus in her womb, for the fetus is considered a Rodef of its mother. Uh, and uh, why the Rambam invokes Rodef is, is one of the fascinating questions of, of halacha, which has occupied hundreds, if not thousands, of pages on, on the interpretation of this particular passage. But Ramosha Feinstein invoked this Rambam, uh, and he compared the case of Siamese twins to this classic case of the conflict for survival between a mother and child and fetus. Uh, baby A had no independent ability to survive. Her entire survival was completely dependent on her sister who had the circulatory system to back up the functioning of the heart and liver. So while there is much to discuss, he applied, Rav Moshe applied the Rambam's notion of Rodef here, that the, the parasitic twin, if you will, was being Rodef, the primary twin or twin A. As a result, it would be permissible to sacrifice the life of the parasitic twin to save the, uh, the second twin. As to whether this would apply to other areas, contemporary areas, um, so, for example, uh, in the same area of medicine, in, in the world of, uh, of fertility and, and neonatology and reproduction, it has now become exceedingly common for women to carry uh, multiples, higher, higher order multiples uh, in pregnancy, higher, uh, including uh, triplets, quadruplets, up to eight or nine um, have been have been reported. There was a case of ten that was reported, but that was a, f a false report that I don't think we've seen yet. But the the question which has arisen in these kinds of cases, um, and there's two reasons why there's there's many there's been an increase in uh, multiple gestational pregnancies. 
Uh, reason number one is due to assisted reproduction, uh, physicians implant embryos, uh, and there, there is no legal um, restriction or limitation as to how many embryos can be implanted. So in the earlier days, not so much today, physicians used to implant four, five, six, seven embryos in the hopes that at least a few of them would take. Sometimes all of them would successfully implant and you'd have uh, many, many, uh, uh, you'd have a, a sextuplets, septuplets, octuplets, and, and it would be a serious risk to all the fetuses um, with such a small womb for them to survive. And the other reason also in the world of fertility is not because the doctors are implanting the, these uh, embryos, but rather they are administering drugs which stimulate ovulation. And sometimes a woman will ovulate multiple eggs and all the eggs could be fertilized, resulting in a uh, multi-gestational pregnancy. So the question is, has been asked for post-scheme of, of rabbinic authorities over the past uh, few decades uh, since the, uh, the development of these technologies whether it's permitted to, to decrease the, uh, the term in medicine is selective reduction, but uh, it's really a euphemism for, for selective abortion. Uh, in order to, uh, to decrease the number of fetuses, to increase the likelihood of, of better survival and health. So can one selectively reduce? So here the question is, can you invoke the same notion of Rodef? Uh, and some have invoked the notion of Rodef here. Would the Rambam invoke the, the notion of Rodef? Not, uh, not a simple answer here, because while uh, the Rav Moshe was clearly uh, adamant about determining that there was an asymmetry in order to apply Rodef here, there, there isn't necessarily an asymmetry. All the fetuses have, have the, uh, are in a, in a state of, uh, of reciprocal uh, redifa uh, they are they are all simultaneously pursuing each other. So there's no clear A or B or primary or secondary. So invoking the notion of Rodef here becomes a little more challenging. Not so clear if the Rambam would in fact invoke that in this particular case or not. Uh, stem cell research would be interesting to know what the Rambam would say about stem cell research. What's unique about stem cell research uh, is we have an embryo outside the human body. Uh, now, the Rambam seems to say that uh, absent a notion of Rodef, if there's no scenario where, where a, uh, um, uh, the, the life of the mother is, being, uh, is at risk, there may not be license to sacrifice the life of the fetus. Um, so that's something which needs to be discussed here. But what would the Rambam say about an embryo that finds itself ex utero? embryo that finds itself outside the human body? Would he apply the same principles of, uh, of the requirement for Rodef? Or maybe uh, a, an embryo outside the human body would, would receive, uh, would have less status because it doesn't have uh, halachic potential as a fetus inside the body. So fetus inside the body, for example, halach is very clear. You're allowed to be Mechal Shabbos uh, for a six-month fetus. Even if fetus less than 40 days, you're allowed to be Mechal Shabbos. Um, but are you allowed to be Michal Shabbos for an embryo in the laboratory? So most of today's poskim would say the answer to that is no. Would the Rambam also make that distinction between ex utero and in utero? We unfortunately don't have, uh, have evidence to determine. Genetics is another fascinating area where uh, the Rambam could weigh in on uh, this is a magnificent illustration of a safer Torah made from uh, from DNA. Um, so a Torah is a, a Torah is clearly part of our DNA, 
but I would argue the reciprocal, uh, the converse is also true, that DNA or medicine or science is also very much part of our part of our Torah. Uh, there's one interesting aspect where we might have some insight um, how the Rambam would paskin. Of course, there are many issues uh, to discuss about the world of genetics. But one one issue, uh, which is an important issue and a real halacha lemaisa issue, is disclosure of information and uh, disclosure of uh, of the existence of genetic disease. Uh, today, uh, many people are doing testing. There's a wonderful organizations uh, that are doing that are doing uh, uh, testing. Um, JScreen is a is a new organization on the on the scene over the last few years, testing for close to 200 uh, different diseases. Um, if you find out that you are a carrier for a disease, or that uh, you contain a predisposition gene, like a gene for uh, for breast cancer, etc., uh, are you obligated to disclose that kind of information? Uh, so many people turn to the Rambam for guidance in terms of disclosing information in general, uh, and the Rambam subsumes it under his discussion of lo sa'amod al dam re'echa. Uh, so the Rambam says, uh, don't stand idly by as the blood of your brother is being shed. That clearly includes, includes uh, discussion uh, about saving the physical lives of others, um, which we'll discuss uh, in, in just a moment about halachic ramifications there. Um, but the Rambam also says that, that it includes um, So not only does it, does it involve saving life, but it also involves uh, withholding information, valuable information that could be detrimental to somebody. Uh, so, uh, so many people turn to this Rambam in terms of guidance um, about the necessity to disclose information that that uh, if the person was uh, was not familiar with this information might make a transaction and a, uh, a transaction includes marriage which is also a form of transaction uh, and a faulty transaction without knowing the information that they would need to know to make that kind of transaction so how that would be applied uh, to what diseases that would be applied uh, is a matter of debate. There's a wonderful uh, um, uh, work from uh, PUA, the organization PUA, uh, where they actually itemize um, many, many different diseases and, and go into great detail about which specific diseases, including physical diseases and diseases of mental health, uh, for which one would be required to disclose um, and those for which one would not be required uh, to disclose, as well as those which uh, which would be uh, ideal to disclose, but not necessarily obligatory. Um, what would the Rambam say about plastic surgery today? Plastic surgery has really uh, exponentially increased in our lifetimes. Um, this is just a, a list of 20 of the more popular uh, forms of plastic surgery, uh, liposuction, you don't, you don't need uh, you don't need me to read this for you. You're all uh, familiar with these kinds of plastic surgery. Um, and uh, the question is, uh, you're violating the bodily integrity. Uh, you're causing um, a wound. Chavala, uh, wounding someone is a is a is a uh, is a prohibition. Uh, w- would you be allowed to do such a thing in order to? Uh, 
to achieve uh, a greater, uh, more beautiful appearance? Is that something which would be considered uh, halachically appropriate or not? Um, so here, Ramosha Feinstein's Atzal, uh, in a uh, classic chuva, probably one of the earliest chuvas of, of the modern discussions of, of plastic surgery, um, invokes the Rambam uh, to, to establish a principle uh, which is applied to plastic surgery and as we'll see to other areas as well. And, and here what he, what he uh, the case was, it was, a, it was a remarkable case of a young woman um, who, who had a very poor self-image, probably today would be body dysmorphic syndrome, would be the, uh, the, the psychological diagnosis. Uh, and, and her nose, she thought her nose uh, uh, was not very uh, pleasant for the eyes. And the, furthermore, uh, not only was this uh, impacting on her notions of self-worth, it was also impacting on her ability to, um, her marriage ability. So she asked if it was permissible to undergo at that time rhinoplasty, which is one of the few major plastic surgeries available. Now there are, of course, many, many more. Uh, so Moshe actually poskined uh, for a variety of reasons uh, that indeed it would be permissible to do so, but he invoked the Rambam in uh, in Perica uh, Chovel, um, where where he uh, he writes that yes, it's it's prohibited to uh, to cause damage or harm or wound somebody. Um, but the Rambam qualifies this, and the Rambam says, One cannot cause bodily damage or wounding uh, neither to himself or to others. Uh, however, um, only if it is done, what's the prohibition? Uh, the prohibition, if it's, if it's done derech nitzayon, or as some say, derech bizayon. Uh, so he qualifies this, and this qualification is unique to the Rambam, and says wounding is only prohibited if it has no positive purpose, if it's done in a destructive fashion, if it's done to desecrate the body, to degrade the body. Um, but uh, so, so Moshe picks this up and says, you know, this is clearly not done for a destructive purpose. This is done for an ultimate positive value. Uh, so he, employing this principle of the Rambam, uh, says that it, it would be permitted. Uh, how this would be applied to different plastic surgeries is a matter of, of, uh, of contemporary post scheme and what and uh, each surgery, of course, uh, as, as surgeries get more severe and more expansive and more extreme, uh, one would have to consider uh, the halachic details for each procedure. Uh, same thing applies to another uh, very popular procedure, which uh, thankfully is helping many, many people today. And that's the ability to donate an organ from one living human being to another human being. Um, and uh, living organ donation has been going on since the 1960s, 1950s, 1960s, started out actually earlier than that, started with cornea donation and then and kidney donation. Uh, so the question is, is it halakhically permitted? What will the Rambam say about, about somebody donating a kidney? Here too, you're clearly uh, undergoing chavala and, and it's not just a minor, Chavala, it's it's a, it's a major chavala. You are uh, you are uh, uh, receiving an abdominal incision. You're removing one of your kidneys. Uh, so surely uh, this is this does not fall into the category of derech bizayon. Quite the contrary, this is not uh, something done for for the purpose of desecration or destruction. This is uh, for the ultimate higher value 
of potentially saving a life. And there's no question that the, uh, the Rambam would be Mater living organ donation today. Uh, there's a magnificent organization which you in the United Kingdom may be uh, familiar with, although it's, it's based here in the United States. It's called Renewal. Uh, here I just mentioned, uh, if, this is February 9th, a few, uh, few weeks ago, uh, they, they always post little blurbs. Um, here happens to be a member of the Sparta community. Bobby, a member of the Sparta community, has waited six long years for this day. Uh, from the time that he registered with us to the day of transplant, Bobby is one of our longest waiting transplants. Uh, first, it took years for him to get cleared by the hospital at age 80. And then his transplant was canceled six times. And finally, Baruch Hashem, he got a transplant on February 9th. Really amazing. Um, they, they, have, they have facilitated this organization called Renewal over 800 transplants in just a few years' time. And it's really, uh, it's a really, really tremendous, uh, tremendous Kiddush Hashem. What about uh, selling organs? Um, you know what I'm going to do, just in the interest of time, I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to um, spend a few moments, like uh, two or three minutes on COVID and then uh, and then close up and then open for questions. If anybody has any questions, what would the Rambam say about issues relating to COVID and COVID-19? Obviously, it would have been nice if we had the, the Rambam to guide us through this. But Baruch Hashem, we have many gedolim today. Uh, including a Russia Weiss Shlita that's uh, posted on the Torah Sarfua, um, had some amazing uh, postings just over the last few days, who's, who's guided us through these, uh, these very challenging times. Um, uh, so the, what would the Rambam say about taking risks? Uh, so the Rambam, we said, Losamud al-Damriecha would also uh, require us to take at least a limited risk in order to save others to save people's lives. This is this is actually uh, me in my uh, hazmat gear. I, I, uh, my clinical practice is emergency medicine. I work at one of the major centers here in New York. Um, so suffice it to say, it's been a challenging time the last few years. Um, but what would the Rambam say about vaccination? Do you think the Rambam would be an anti-vaxxer? So if anyone here thinks the Rambam would be an anti-vaxxer, I think we have to have a serious conversation about your understanding of the Rambam. There is little doubt that the Rambam would have strongly supported vaccines. The Rambam clearly integrated science. As we said, the Rambam wrote a parish on Galen, wrote a parish on Hippocrates, granted with his, uh, uh, with his commentaries and his criticisms. Uh, but the Rambam clearly in integrated contemporaneous medicine in addition to his uh, integration to, to a large extent of the work of, uh, of others, including Aristotle, uh, which has been the substance of many uh, academic discussions today, too. Um, the Rambam, as Ravasha Weiss has discussed a number of times uh, in, in the Rambam, you will find many discussions about health preservation, about uh, cases of imminent danger, uh, where there's a chiv d'oraisa, uh, cases of potential danger, uh, where there's a surim d'rabanan, um, and uh, and preventive measures, which we talked about in uh, in Perik Dalad of uh, of Hilchas Deus, there is little question in the midst of this pandemic, uh, the Rambam would have strongly supported uh, strongly supported vaccination. What would the Rambam say about cloning? Um, so honestly, I have no clue what the Rambam would say about cloning. But if we did clone the Rambam. And we went to Tveria and we took a tiny piece, if it was halachically permissible, to take uh, from the kever and clone the Rambam. 
then the one thing we would solve is we would finally know what the Rambam actually looks like. And if all these pictures that we've been we've been uh, reproducing century after century are an accurate depiction of the Rambam or not. So in, in conclusion, we've, we've had an opportunity to, uh, to discuss uh, the history of the Rambam uh, and engage in a, a thought exper experiment, which obviously could be expanded, uh, of how the Rambam would paskin or uh, what the Rambam's thoughts would be on a number of contemporary issues in the uh, in the 21st century i would be delighted to uh, to entertain any questions if you have any questions and again a tremendous chus to join these two uh, extraordinary groups uh and uh, and i look forward to to learning from both of your groups in the uh, in the future thank you so much rabbi that was amazing very insightful and if anyone has any questions you can find in reactions at the bottom you can raise your hand and uh, uh, Rabbi, there's also questions in the chat box. Yes, yes, I'm going to uh, I'm going to look for those uh, too. Um, great. Okay, so so they they knew anatomy with Ilchus Trefus. Yes, yes, yes. And in fact, um, the the, uh, the rabbis Chazal probably were had a better understanding than other societies because of the necessity to dissect Ilchus Trefus. And there actually is a Gemara in Bechoros. On Mem Dalit, I believe, of uh, a fascinating uh, account of the students of Rabbi Shmuel who dissected a woman after the postmortem dissection, um, and it has interesting halachic ramifications. They dissected uh, the Mishnah in Oelo says Ramach Evarim Yesh the 248 Evarim, however those Evarim are to be defined. The students of Rabbi Shmuel dissected the body and they found found out there weren't 248; there were 252. Or different different yourselves maybe 253 so uh, why why the discrepancy so one of the answers is that uh, that they dissected a woman and the there's a there's a difference in the in the organs between a, a man and a woman now one thing that that tells us is is that they clearly are not talking about bones because there is no difference between the number of bones of a man and the number of bones of a woman they there's there's maybe a difference in the in the angle of the spine and the pelvis but there is no difference but how's that halachalamaisa translated to today some some shuls make a mish, different mishaberach for men and different mishaberach for women on shabbos for the mishaberach lachola uh, there's only one textual difference between those two for the men it says they should have a before Shlema Liramach Evarehem Lushasagi Dehem to their 248 Evarim and to their uh, 365 Gidim, whatever, however that's to be defined. But for women, they can't say that based on the Gemara because women don't have Ramach Evarim. Women have more. So uh, so it says the text has changed. Lechol Evarehem Lechol Gidehem. Now the question is, what do they do for Shema? When you have to, when you have, uh, the, you need 200, 248 uh, for the Shema. Uh, so should women add extra? So, uh, so there's some folks going to say that women should add extra words to equal 252. Interesting, interesting discussions. Um, the risk, risk for general anesthesia and uh, and plastic surgery. Uh, so general, general, the risk of general an anesthesia today is is extremely small. So the post writing in the 60s and the 70s are writing about the risks of general anesthesia, and they, and they weigh that weighs very heavily. 
in, in halachic uh, discussions. Today, the risk of anesthesia is, is exceedingly small. Uh, and, and I suggest you listen to I can try and remember, and I'll, I'll send you. There's there's a, a talk by Herschel Schechter Schlita from YU, Rosh Hashiva of YU, on plastic surgery, and and I, I was actually uh, was uh, was uh, it was it was astounding to me how remarkably lenient he was in terms of plastic surgeries um, today. Uh, I was I was to be honest, I was I was uh, I was surprised to hear. I mean, obviously, halachically, it's uh, he's the gaon of halacha, but uh, I was always sort of trained that plastic surgery was uh, was generally not not considered uh, in many circumstances permitted. But uh, based on his halachic analysis, especially appreciating that uh, that anesthesia is not as dangerous as it was in the, in the past times. Let's see. Any other questions while I'm looking at the uh, at the uh, chat here? We have uh, Sina. Dr. Eichmann, thank you so much for the class. Uh, really, really fascinating. Um, I had a question. I know that Rabbi um, Abraham ben Haram Bam in his Sefer Amaspik um, relates to um, his take that the medical or scientific sayings uh, of Chazal aren't necessarily things that are binding eternally. Did, do we see anything like that in Harambam's writings? Uh, so, uh, right, so the, the question is, is he reflecting the famous passage from, uh, from Avon ben Arambam where, where in essence he says, uh, which has been perpetuated, you know, throughout the centuries by other people, and there's, there's a wonderful passage by Shemshun Rafal Hirsch also, uh, in, in essence saying that um, that uh, the, the Chazal were not scientists or physicians. They were masters of halacha, uh, and they relied heavily on, on contemporaneous uh, medicine. And, and by the way, Rav Asher um, Weishlita has, uh, has, has made a very strong case in many times and many wonderful shiurim uh, showing how, how Chazal have always relied on experts in many different fields, including uh, including in the fields of uh, of medicine. Actually, this uh, the book that I, that I that uh, was recently published. Um, in essence, the premise of the book is, uh, or the approach of the book really is is to analyze many of the writings of Chazal throughout uh, the cent the centuries or the millennia. Uh, and to enlighten the sources based on the contemporaneous medicine that it was understood at the time. Um, so that that's really uh, now I, uh, as to what uh, Postkin will do with that. That's uh, you know that, that's that's a matter of debate, a matter of discussion. But many of these sources you simply cannot understand without understanding the medicine that was contemporary to them. Because they're using terms, they're using expressions, uh, and if we're trying to extrapolate to today, uh, we would be doing a disservice if we didn't understand it in its own uh, in its own historical context. But the assumption is that that the Rambam did follow that as well. I mean, the Rambam clearly says you should follow the rational uh, the rational science, the rational uh, uh, academic pursuits, uh, no matter where they come from. If uh, if they're if they're appropriately and academically sound, we should uh, we should follow them. Thank you so much. By the way, there's a wonderful work called Sefer Hishtanut Hatvaim by Neri Gutal. Um, unfortunately, not yet been translated into English, but uh, but he, he he gathers many of the uh, 
um, the issues uh, on this interface of, of Nishtana Hateva. I'll also uh, like to point out that uh, Rosh uh, Bet Midrash, Rabbi Dweck, is over here. So, hello, Rav. Hi. Uh, Dr. Reichman, I just wanted to, I'm sorry that I could not be here for the entire show. I heard the tail end, and I'm looking very forward to hearing the recording. Uh, I know that it will be, it is a diamond in the treasury of the Chabura. And I'm on behalf of the entire uh, Bet Midrash, I want to thank you so much for taking your time to share of your wisdom and insights uh, to, to, to all of the Chaburim. Uh, it's a tremendous, tremendous good to have you with us. Thank you very, very much. And, the, uh, the the zhut is is absolutely mine. I am kolakavo to the uh, so so if don't don't listen to the entire shir, but just listen to the beginning where I praise the uh, the chabura. That that part's the most important part of the shir. Thank the, you very uh, much for doing so, and please God, but, we, should but I am, to, we should live up to the to the halal. <laughs> Thank you, and I see kavodar uh, tats. An honor to have you with us tonight. Thank you also for taking the time. It's, it's wonderful to have you in the Midrash, in the virtual Midrash. I think we have a question in the chat about uh, conjoined twins. Let's see. With regard to the conjoined twins, why apply the halacha regarding a fetus in utero? And Maimonides qualifies there's a distinction between a fetus that's already emerged and one that is still in utero. So, so that is an excellent question. Um, and it's not it's not so clear, it's not so directly applicable, and that's why I sort of use the word inspired by or guided by the Rambam. Uh, and, and this is something, by the way, that Rabbi Tatz also uh, discusses in his shurim in terms of the, the applicability of, uh, of the discussion of the Rambam, which is, is pre-birth uh, to a case where these, these uh, conjoined twins are, were actually born. Um, the, uh, there's some other fascinating halachic shilas about conjoined twins in terms of uh, uh, Yerusha, the Yoresh too, in terms of Tefillin, the Shvos Yaakov has a famous shila about Tefillin for uh, craniopagus twins, two twins that are conjoined at the head. So do they have to each put on a separate pair of Tefillin or is, or is one pair of Tefillin enough? Um, are conjoined twins um, allowed to marry two different wives, like uh, like Chang and Ang Bunker, or there uh, is Surim involved uh, involved in that? Um, you know, are two heads really better than one? That's really the uh, what it comes down to. Uh, if I may ask, um, so we brought before how Rambam brought. Um... Um, the, his scientific um, understanding in the beginning of Mishnah Torah. And the question is, why does he actually do that? Especially if he knew that the science does change. So uh, the uh, in Hilfus Deus, actually, it's um, as opposed to today where things really change, really, really evolve. Uh, one could argue that many of his uh, of his suggestions are timeless. Um, he's talking about some innate aspects of, of nature, of, uh, of vegetation, of, uh, of vegetables and fruits and, uh, and, and drinking and eating and sleeping. Um, and in fact, there, there are many people who claim that uh, uh, we should return to those days. And, uh, and maybe the Rambam's promise that uh, if we did adhere to his recommendations, we would lead a longer life maybe we should give it a try as opposed to all these uh, fad diets 
that we're all that we're all trying for for a quick fix. So uh, he's not really mentioning any technologies which uh, which have been disproven or no longer valid. Although we did mention the the uh, the eight month baby where the Rambam clearly was accepting of the understanding of the eight month fetus, which is not in consonance with our contemporary understanding. So so that that requires a uh, you know, a different type of analysis and maybe an invoking of a concept of, uh, of Nishtana Teva. Uh, but the Rambam generally doesn't mention a lot of the things in the Gemara that are uh, magical or superstitious or, or questionable medical uh, validity, it tends to omit um, a lot of those. Okay. Do we have any final questions? Okay, fine. Thank you so much, Rabbi. That was extremely insightful and amazing. Uh, thank you so much, uh, the Torah Tarefua Institute, uh, for co-hosting with us today. And please follow us for more of the amazing things we are doing at the Chabura. And thank you so much, everyone, for coming. It was an amazing shiur. Thank you all so much. Tremendous chus. Kalakavod, and uh, look forward to seeing you in person. Uh, in the near future, as opposed to by, uh, as opposed to zing you by Zoom. Amen. Thank you all. Thank you very much. Good night. Thank you. Thank you. Have a good night. Thank you.